Today, the storyteller in the book of Genesis is going to move us from Jacob's death, surrounded by his sons and grandsons, back to the story of his sons. And so we return to the story of Joseph and his brothers one last time. And by now, we've spent long enough on Jacob's death scene. It was so dramatic that uh, Joseph might be kind of a vague memory to us. And for those of us that are familiar with Joseph, but it's kind of vague, uh, most of us think of him as this great model of forgiveness, which he is, right? That's the the big thing about his story. His brothers uh, hate him, and they betray him, and they sell him into slavery. And then the tables turn, and he is in power and has power over their lives, and, and he forgives them. Uh, and, and everybody I talk to is just so, so moved by that. And it does a couple of things in our hearts. Uh, it, it makes us long to experience a forgiveness like that. And it shows us the beauty of forgiveness so that we want to be able to offer that to other people who have, who have wronged us. Uh, we see it done so beautifully and we say, I, I want to do that. I want to be that kind of person, that kind of man, that kind of woman. Um, and... One of the things that can happen, though, is in the heart is we can look around it and say, but I don't know how I could ever do what he did, right? Like, I can't even forgive, like, that one person, right? You're probably thinking of somebody. Like, I can't even forgive that person. How would I forgive my sister if she sold me to a human trafficker? Right? And this is what Joseph does. And so it's this lofty picture of forgiveness That leads a lot of people to say, I don't know how I could do this in my own power. Uh, And the good news I want to give you when we start out here is that not only does this story make us love forgiveness and want to offer it to people, it shows us how we can do it. In fact, it shows us that all of God's people have been given all of the things that Joseph was given to enable him to forgive. So as we read it, I know it will move you to want to be able to forgive people like he did. But we're also going to see that if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ Jesus, you can do what he did. In fact, you've got the power living in you to do it. How will that work? We will see. Today we finish the book of Genesis with this last story about Joseph. And we're going to see him do actually three things really well. Not just forgive well, but he's going to grieve the death of his father really well. And then he's going to forgive his brothers very well. And then his own time is going to come and he's going to die. And he's going to die really well. Three of the hardest moments in life, and he is going to handle them like a champ. And by God's power, I hope you walk out of here today. I've been praying that you walk out of here today saying, God has actually given me enough to do that too. And we're ready to go forth and do likewise in the power that God has given you. Let's read Genesis 50 together. The only context I'll give you is that their father Jacob has just died, an old man in his bed. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please let me speak into the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. 
And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, there they lamented with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, and it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field that is at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of your servants, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, and children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Through the ending of the book of Genesis, the Spirit of God equips his people to grieve well, to forgive well, and to die well. We're going to watch Joseph do all three of those things. We have watched him do all three of those things. And then we'll talk about what it would look like for you and I, as the people of God, to do all three of those things well ourselves. Let's walk through how Joseph does them first. 
Now, you may remember from last week, his father Jacob had given instructions as to what was to happen to his body after he died. It was this very dramatic scene, the kind of death I think a lot of us want, where you're on your bed and you've had many years and lots of kids and grandkids and a whole family that came from you is there with you to watch you go. And he gives them instructions saying, the Lord told me, I heard his voice say that he was going to deliver us from this land of Egypt. And then we're going to go back to our homeland in Canaan. And so, boys, I want you to bury my body back home. So it is this hope-filled command, because he's so so, so confident in God's promise that they're going to deliver them back to Israel. He says, I want my bones buried there. And so Joseph watches his father die, and he just falls upon his father's face and then follows through on those instructions. He takes his father back to Canaan, has him buried in the exact cave that he wanted to be buried in. So those first 14 verses tell that story. And the author emphasizes a few things that you probably noticed as it was happening. He emphasizes how big the group is, right? You remember him just naming off all those people that were there and all the officials there? And finally, in case you missed it, he says it was a very great company. So it was a lot of people that took this journey back there, even a lot of Egyptians. And he emphasizes also what you probably noticed, they were really grieving deeply, So they weep 70 days for him. You see Joseph fall on his father's face and and kiss him. Uh, You see lots of people grieving. You see the Egyptians grieving. And then you see other people seeing them grieving, saying, that is a great and grievous lamentation. And so it's pretty tough to miss in those first verses that a lot of people are very sad. That's pretty much the gist of it. The author is also emphasizing a few things that we might miss, really one thing that we might miss. So we see very plainly they're following through on the instructions. There are a lot of them. They're very sad. Uh, in the very beginning, in verse 1, Joseph falls on his father's face. And it's so emotional that you might just think, oh, that's an emotional picture, and, and let it go. But, but if you're paying really close attention... And if you were paying really close attention about three months ago when we talked about Jacob entering this land of Egypt, you might remember, oh yeah, on the, on the day when the Lord appeared to Jacob and promised him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you in the land of Egypt and then I'm going to deliver you out. So the day the Lord made this promise, he would take them out. He promised one more thing. He said, and your son Joseph will close your eyes. So, while he is articulating this hope that God will deliver them, he's, he's hoping at one promise, and simultaneously God is keeping the other promise. Joseph is the one that falls on his face, kisses him, and closes his eyes. So you add all that together, and you've got a lot of people who are grieving deeply. They are not emotionally detached from this moment and these months They are putting their hope in God's promise, and they have even watched God keep one of those promises. So you roll all that up and you say, okay, these are people who are able to grieve deeply but grieve well because they hope in God's promise. Then the story moves on. Second part of it, verses 15 to 21, they tell the story of Joseph and his brothers reconciling again. They already reconciled once, right? But now they're reconciling again. 
essentially what happens is Joseph's brothers, they have already reunited. Uh, they've already hugged each other. They're already friends again. But now that Jacob is dead, they get scared and they say, wait a minute, what, what if he was only being nice to us because dad was around? And maybe now that dad's gone, he'll do what he really wants to do to us. Right? Joseph is powerful. He snaps his fingers, they're dead. So they're scared of him. And so they kind of concoct this whole story. Okay, let's send messengers to Joseph and let's tell him, uh, your father didn't say this to you, but his last wish was that you would forgive us and, and be nice to us. There's almost no chance that this is true. It's almost certain that they're making this up. Uh, Jacob's last words are very detailed, recorded in the previous chapter, right? He says a lot of things on his deathbed. And there is no moment when he has all the brothers gathered except Joseph. There is a moment where he has Joseph and not the other brothers. And he says all kinds of wonderful things, but he never says, Joseph, make sure you forgive your brothers. He never says, brothers, I want you to tell Joseph to forgive you. That wouldn't even make any sense. And so this must be coming across to Joseph as not very earnest and not very genuine, right? They're back to their old games, making stuff up and manipulating and, oh, they're back to doing what they were doing. So he hears this and, uh, and, and he weeps. He's just like, guys... You don't, you don't have to do this stuff anymore. Like, I, I forgave you. I love you. So then they come before him, and they, and they bow down before him and say, we are your servants. Now, there's another thing that if you're paying close attention, you might notice a connection there. Many years ago, Joseph had a dream, and the dream said his brothers were going to come and bow down before him. So here is God keeping another promise right in front of Joseph. And then moved by God keeping that promise, he looks at them and he says two things. He says, am I in the place of God that I would punish you for what you've done to me? He says, no, you, know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God meant that I would go through all that to save the whole nation of Israel. I said, don't be afraid. I'll provide you. I'll take care of you. That was God's purpose in the whole thing. So he forgives them again, and he does it for two reasons, he says. One is that he is confident that God will judge the evildoer. He says, I'm not in the place of God to, to punish you for what you've done. So he is fully confident when the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Or he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, for the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He's confident the Lord's going to do that. So whatever just thing needs to be done to these guys, the Lord will do it. He's not in God's place, so he forgives them. And the second reason is that he is confident God has used his unjust suffering to bless everybody on earth, even to save them from the famine. Now, it didn't make sense when he was a slave in Potiphar's house. And it didn't make sense when he was in prison, essentially rotting in prison, but then, when the Pharaoh called him up and things started to happen, it started to make sense. If Joseph's brothers had never sold him into slavery, he never would have wound up in Pharaoh's prison. And the Pharaoh would not have had access to someone who could interpret dreams. And so he would have had these dreams. He wouldn't have known what to do with them. And so he wouldn't have known that after the seven years of plenty they were about to experience, seven years of severe famine were coming. So they wouldn't have stored up all of that grain. 
And then the seven years of famine would have come and Egypt wouldn't have food to eat. Not only that, the neighboring nations would not have had anywhere to go to get food. And one of those neighboring nations was God's people, Jacob's family. The people of God would have starved if Joseph hadn't been sold into slavery. And so what they meant for evil, God meant to save many, many people. In fact, we can go as far as to say, now that we know how the story ends, because the promised one that they're waiting for, Jesus Christ, comes from this family, and he saves not the whole world from starvation, but the whole world from from sin and from death. Uh, We can say if these people had starved, Jesus never would have come. So, Even our salvation, even what the Lord did for us in his death and his resurrection here on earth, part of that plan to save anyone who would come to Jesus Christ involved Joseph getting shackled, put on a cart, and being taken off to Egypt. So he's a picture of what Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. If you're part of the people of God, everything that God has ever orchestrated, everything that has ever happened is being worked together to bless you forever. And that means all the things that are happening to you, all the unjust suffering that you are going through. Somehow, though it doesn't make sense now, and it didn't make sense to Joseph when he was sitting in prison, one day you will look back and you will say, I can't believe the Lord used that to bless his people forever. So he's got confidence in God's working through his unjust suffering. And he's able to say, yeah, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so he finds it much easier to forgive them. So he's able to forgive his brothers then because he hopes in God's promises. God has promised he will judge the evildoer. God has promised that all things will work together for good for God's people. And with hope in those promises, it seems almost effortless for him to forgive even as he weeps. Then we move to part three of the story. Joseph has buried his father years go by, and now we start to hear the same things happening again. Now his time has come. Uh, The lights are growing dim for him, and he gathers his family together, just like Jacob did, and he speaks to them words of, of confidence. He says two times, God will visit you, right? Surely God will visit you and he will redeem you up out of this land. The second time he says it, now when he does, what I want you to do is take my bones with you, right? Now, Now dad wanted to be buried there. I can't have that, but what I want is for you to preserve my remains and just wrap me up to go because I know the Lord is going to take you out of here and put handles on the box and bring me with you when you go, right? So he's got the same hope in God's promises. Surely God is going to come and visit you. And so we get this wonderful picture of him sitting on his deathbed and just saying with confidence, kids, God's going to bless you. He's going to come. 
Uh, one of my favorite hymns, it's not very well known, it's written by John Newton. Uh, it's called The Lord Will Provide. And the, the last lines are, no fearing or doubting with Christ on our side. We hope to die shouting the Lord will provide. That's essentially what he does here. He dies just emphasizing God is going to rescue us. And then he gives up his strength. So he dies like a champion. And how does he do it? He does it with hope in God's promises. So hope in God's promises then equipped him to grieve well when his beloved father was ripped from his arms. And the hope in God's promises equipped him to forgive his brothers when they had done one of the most unthinkable sins to him. And then hope in God's promises equipped him to die well. The book of Hebrews says that hope anchors the soul, right? You got a boat sitting out in the bay with no anchor, and it's just a matter of time before the winds blow it over or blow it to shore. The waves move, and it just starts rocking, and it it just goes adrift without an anchor. But you got a boat sitting in the bay with with a firm anchor, And it doesn't matter what way the winds are blowing. It doesn't matter what direction the waves are crashing. It stays steadfast. stays in the same spot. Hope, that is a confidence that God will do what he's promised you he's going to do. Hope does that to your soul. When the waves crash this way, and then the waves crash that way, and then the waves crash the other way when you weren't ready for it. Hope does that to your soul when the winds blow north and then west and then north again and then south. It keeps you anchored. It keeps you centered. And that analogy is beautiful, but sometimes we need a picture. Like, okay, what would that look like in my life, right? What's that look like, like Monday to Sunday, and, and that's where Joseph comes in. Joseph is a picture of what that looks like, what the author means when he says hope anchors the soul. He can grieve his father well. He can forgive his brothers well. He can die well because he's got hope in God's promises. And here's the awesome thing. Everything he was hoping in, we know from the New Testament, will happen in one day. In one moment, right? He's confident that the Lord will come and visit them. He's confident the Lord will come and, and deliver him, deliver them when he visits them. He's confident that the Lord will judge the evildoer. He's confident that the Lord will one day make plain how all things work together for good and all the suffering will work out to bless us. All of those things happen the moment Jesus Christ returns. And so we can fix our hope on one flash of light coming from the sky, like one moment. That means that, as Second Peter says, God has given you through his divine power, God has given you, if you're a Christian, everything you need to live a holy life through your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because you know the one who called you to his glory and excellence. Because you know his beauty. 
Because you know the promises that he is making. You know that he will come back. You know that he will judge the evildoer when he does. You know that he will deliver his people when he does. You know that all things that have ever happened to you will work together for the good of God's people. And you know that most of all, he himself will be here when he comes. Because you know those things. His divine power is giving you everything you need to live a holy life. And so how do, how do you grieve well when someone or something you love most just ripped out of your arms? Uh, how, how do you forgive the person who did the unthinkable to you? And when your time comes, uh, how, how do you die well? You do it with hope in, in the coming of Jesus Christ. You place your hope where this man Joseph placed it. So, so the point then for you then is cling to what you know about Jesus. Joseph is clinging to what he knows about God and his promises. Cling to what you know about Jesus. And he will give you everything you need to grieve well, to forgive well, and, and to die well. Do it all by the power of the promises of God. That is why we don't stop singing about the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead and that is why I won't stop talking about it, right? Because you're walking through your lives every day and everything just feels so real and so material and all the call of the world is, is just calling you to care about nothing but this world and this time and this car you have that keeps breaking down and all these things that are here right now. And you need a moment really every day, but at least every week when the windows of heaven open and you remember that eternity hangs in the balance and Jesus Christ is coming back and all of these supernatural spiritual things, they are, they are real and this Lord is coming for you. So, what we need to ask then is what would it look like, right? We've got to get real ground level practical here. Uh, what would it look like if you were to, to grieve and to do it really well? Yeah. Well, uh, when something you love is, is taken from you, right? When, when we lose things we love, it makes us angry. That's how people work, right? Somebody takes... $10 from you, if you really love that $10, you're angry, right? That's how it works. Uh, when, when we watch like a person that we didn't expect to lose just get ripped out of our lives like that, uh, we're losing something dear. And not only that, but uh, if you've ever been near to it, it's just incredible how powerless it makes you feel. Uh, because if you got your way, you would hang on to them. Right? And there is just nothing you can do to keep them here. The other thing is really potent, I think, is just how wrong it feels. Uh, I've been there, you know, because of what I do for a living. I've been there many times uh, in the room and, and nearby when the funeral people come and start doing their work. And there is just nothing about the whole process that feels right. And so you have to start reckoning in your heart with the fact that if you got to choose what would happen, you would be running the universe a very different way, but the Lord got to choose what happened, and he ran the universe in a way that does not make sense to you right now. So dealing with all this, this will pull your emotions toward anger. This will pull your emotions toward despair. 
Uh, your emotions may be so deep and profound that you just detach from the whole thing because you can't bear everything that it feels like. And the, the hardest part for me as I talk about this is that I realized this week that when, when we talk about this, I, I'm not preparing you for the possibility that this might happen to you one day. Um, for most of you, it already has happened, right? And for all of us, if we live long enough, it will happen. It's a, it's a certainty. And so the word I'm looking forward to saying the least is when that day comes. I wish I could say if that day comes, but I say it, when that day comes, uh, how are you not going to just rail against God in anger? Um, how are you not going to sink all the way down into despair and say, I can't save anybody, I can't fix things, what is the point? Uh, how are you not going to just detach from emotions and from people and from living and isolate yourselves? Uh, there's so many bad ways we handle grief. How are you going to embrace the crying, embrace the weeping, but not embrace all of the sin it is going to tempt you to? You can't do that in your own power, and, and I can't do that in my own power. But, but we've got Joseph, and we've got Second Peter saying his divine power has given you everything you need. And so the way you can do it is, is clinging to the promises of Jesus Christ. Right? If you know then, this isn't the last of the story. The Lord will come. He will make all things right and new. Right? If you can cling to that, when the moment you watch him go, and the moment you're weeping, you can cling to that during the funeral. I hope God gives you a minister that proclaims the resurrection of the dead at the funeral. That's how you're going to do it, is clinging to the hope of Jesus Christ. You're still going to weep like Joseph did, and there are people in the room who can tell you that. Um, someone might watch you just losing it and say, just like they said of these guys, that is a great and grievous lamentation. That person is, wow, that person is really crying. You may do that, and you should probably do that. But you can do it with hope. You can grieve as those who have hope if you look to Jesus. Then, what about when the moment comes when you face the person who really hurt you? Um, and when, let's just say in this moment that, you know, when, when they had the power, they were not kind to you. And now you have the power. And so what do you want to do, right? Well, I'm in charge. I'm not going to be nice to you either. Um, and let's just assume for, for this that this person is earnest in repenting and, and asking for forgiveness. We have a whole other sermon on figuring out if they're being earnest or not. But if they are, uh, you're still not going to want to because you're still going to be nursing the pain from, from your own wounds. It just feels so unfair to forgive somebody sometimes because uh, they get to walk away like all good, right? And, and your relationship is reconciled but you still have the pain from what they inflicted on you. So it's like they win. It just doesn't feel right. Uh, how, how will you look at them and not be afraid of them? How will you look at them and offer generous forgiveness to them? Reconciliation of the relationship if it's appropriate, or at least loving them as enemies if they stay as enemies. Uh, I hope you see you, you can't do that in your own power. I can't do that in my own power. Uh, so the only way you can do that is if you are looking ahead to the return of Jesus Christ, who will come and will judge the evildoer. 
Some of the people who have done evil things to me, I, I have thought back and just tried to figure out how much of what that person said was earnest and true. Like, was it all a lie? Like, what was really going on? And it is so freeing to say, I actually don't have to know the answer to that because I'm not the judge. The Lord knows how earnest they were. And the one who will judge them is the one who sees into their heart and knows if their repentance and forgiveness is earnest. And so you can, you can do like Joseph and say, I'm, I'm not in the place of God. I don't, I don't need to know the answer to that. Right? I can leave to the Lord his justice. And I can take those words to heart that say, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Or the Lord says, vengeance is mine and, and I will repay. So if you're looking forward to the day he returns and gives out the perfect just judgment, you can let go of judgment. And if you're looking to the day when he comes and instantly works everything you have ever suffered to the good of all God's people forever, then all of a sudden, all of that suffering doesn't feel like it was for nothing anymore. Some of us look back on periods of our lives and we're like, mercy, because of what somebody did, that just feels like wasted years, right? No, the Lord says he will work all things together for good for those who love the Lord. And so if instead of looking back, you're looking forward to him coming back and working that for the good of his people in some mysterious way, and the day when your friends and your church members and I come up to you and say, I cannot believe the Lord worked even that for all of our good forever. If you're looking forward to that day, that's how you look that person in the eye and you say, you don't owe me anything. I forgive you. And then... What about, when, what about when your time comes? Right? The, the lights grow dim. And the, the thing that a lot of us aren't ready for at death is that, you know, if, if you grieved somebody else in your life, you lost them. That was one person, right? If you're looking at your own coming death, you're going to lose everybody and, and everything. Uh, the career that you built will just be, it'll be gone. Uh, and the, the comforts you have, you'll never eat another steak again. You'll, you'll never have a, another Coke Zero again. That's just me. I love Coke Zero. Uh, you, you'll never have all the good things you love in your life. You'll never touch your spouse again. Like it's all turning dim and, and going astray. And when we lose things we love, right, it makes us angry. That's how people work. And so a lot of people, you might be surprised at how many people in their last hours and last days just rail against God in anger because he's taking everything from them. At the same time, you'll feel your own powerlessness and lack of strength. A moment will come when, when you take a breath and you are not able to take another breath. You don't have the power to breathe anymore. And you'll just have to embrace your powerlessness. How will you face that without, without despair, right? There's nothing I can do. I cannot even lift my body out of this bed. How will you not despair? Uh, how will you have the strength if you get the chance to to care for all the loved ones that you're leaving behind and set up the will and do all the stuff and write letters to your kids and your grandkids and your brother and your sister. And how will you care for everybody full of love in your heart while you are losing everything? There's only one way you can do that. Obviously, you can't do that in your own power. No, no. But if you are thinking, okay, I'm going to close my eyes and then I'm going to see Jesus Christ. Right, then you can do that. If you're thinking, 
I'm going I'm to give this body up. But the next time I'm in a body, it's going to be an immortal, resurrected body. Right? You can, you can die well. You can die with hope. And you can die with, with strength. So how do you die well then? You, you cling to the hope and the promises of Jesus Christ. So that's why I say, Christians, God has given you everything you need to live a holy life. Right? Hardest moments in life. He says, here you go. Here's all you need to do it well. Now, it's on you to take that, right? If we think of it as armor for a battle, it's on you to put the armor on. If we think of it as food to eat, it's on you to eat the food. You've got to take it, right? But if, if you take it, you've got what you need. Okay. Let me close just talking to anybody in this room who's not a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, everything I've said so far is for, for the church, for believers in Jesus. And we say these things knowing that people like you are here overhearing them. And we love that because we want you to know what we have in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, so if you are here right now and, and you're thinking, I don't worship this Jesus. I have not come to him. Uh, I hope what hearing this does is, I hope it just shows you the great power of God to totally change lives, like, right? Like, the, like I hope the, the people you're seeing around you and the amens you're hearing right now is just making your heart say, like, who are these people who can forgive the people who wrong them? Like, who are these people who can grieve powerfully but grieve well and not go crazy? Who are these people that are prepared to die well? And maybe the reason the Lord has one, two, ten people like you here this morning is so that you can look around and have to reckon with the fact that Jesus Christ really changes lives. He really does work in people. And that means he can do this to you too. Let me tell you what he has done for you. Uh, he has come to earth. God has come to earth as a man. And this is this Jesus that we're talking about. Uh, and he, he lived without sin. And then he died to pay for the sins of his people. And then he rose from the dead to guarantee to everybody that trusts him, he'll raise them from the dead too. If he can do it for him, he can do it for you, right? Uh, and then he went back up into heaven where he is now doing what he did for Joseph, orchestrating everything that ever happens for the good of his people, ruling the universe for the good of his people. And he makes a call to you. He says, come and follow me. And essentially that call is that by trusting in him, by believing he's who he says he is and looking to him as God, as Savior, as Lord, as all that he is, you find from him forgiveness for every sin you have ever and will ever commit, right? That cross, that death he paid, boom, pays for it all. And you find a promise of resurrection from the dead yourself. You find a path back to a relationship with God. Now, God is your God again, and you are one of his people again, and you find his guidance for your whole life. Oh, you need guidance for your life. You know, you don't know what to do with life, but he does, and he gives you good guidance and, and good ways, and you find so much more in him. And so this God who has changed so many people around you, uh, he calls you now to him and says, I would like to change you too. Will you come to me, find forgiveness, and find real change. We're going to pray now. We're going to pray that the Lord just puts that in your heart. Let's pray together.